When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, David J. Dennis joins me to chat about his new book, The Movement Made Us. His work has been featured in Atlanta Magazine, The Atlantic, the Washington Post, and Huffington Post, among other publications. He is the recipient of the 2021 American Mosaic Journalism Prize for his 2020 cover story in Atlanta magazine, Ahmad Arbery Will Not Be Erased, which sheds light on the injustice and historical pattern leading up to the murder of a young Black man in Georgia, as well as his piece, An Ode to the Black Women at Dillard's, published in Roxanne Gay's Gay Mag. He is a National Association of Black Journalists Salute to Excellence Award winner, and was named one of the Roots 100 Most Influential African Americans of 2020. He lives in Georgia with his wife and two children, and is a graduate of Davidson College. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, David. How are you today? I'm doing okay. You know, um, as we're recording, I'm about three weeks away from release date. Uh, So, you know, if I start hyperventilating or freaking out in the middle of this, then you'll know why. Well, it's a wonderful book, so there's absolutely nothing to freak out about. But I know that when the countdown is on, it does get pretty nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah. So we're at this, you know, this in-between point where we're just sort of waiting. And thank you, first of all, thank you for, for the kind words. And, you know, I am holding on to every, every sort of uh, positive feedback that I can get at this point to sort of help me sleep at night. The reviews have been great. I was looking over them this morning. Just I always like to see what people have to say before I do an interview. And you have all sorts of wonderful comments and reviews. So you must be very excited and proud. Yeah, I am. It's, you know, it's I, I do a lot of uh, you know, for my writing, I review things and I give feedback. So being on the other side is is a very strange feeling. But yeah, but everything has been, you know, extremely, you know, positive so far. We got a, a 
coveted Kirkastar, which which I understand, you know, which I wasn't all the way familiar with. I mean, I knew Kirkus and everything before, but I wasn't totally understanding, you know, what that really, really meant. So I was excited about that. That was actually the first review we got. So everything else has been great. The bookstagrammers have been fantastic and supportive and positive. So so yeah, so that's all been been wonderful. Yes. A star from Kirkus. When I saw that, I thought you're golden. Okay. All right. It's good to know. Because <laughs> that does not happen very often. Good, good. What I usually do when I start out an interview is have the author tell me a little bit about the book. So those that won't have read it yet will have a little bit of context before I start asking questions. So would you like to tell me a little bit about The Movement Made Us? Yeah. So The Movement Made Us is my dad's story. Uh, I wrote um, from his perspective about the, you know, his time in the movement from 1961 to 1964, sort of beginning with pickets and protests in New Orleans, all the way through the Freedom Rides and, you know, through the Freedom Summer of 1964. And sort of in, interspersed in that is, is my thoughts on how that time impacted him as a father and our relationship and me as a father and a husband and all that stuff and, and sort of our relationship and, and how, you know, we've, we came together and and put this book together. And how relevant it is, sadly, to the world we're living in today. Yeah, you know, it's it sort of was conceptualized a lot during, you know, the Trump administration, to be quite frank, and, and a lot of the thoughts about, you know, how far we've come, how far we still have to go. And it was, you know, through writing this and the, through doing research and learning new things about my dad and his time, there are so many stories that are that could be happening in 2022 that happened in in the 60s. That's the part that I think is really hard to grasp. It's really hard to grasp for me, so I'm sure it's also incredibly hard to grasp for you. So you just wonder why have we not made more progress? But what I thought was interesting was the format. I like that you were telling your father's story and then you interspersed it with your four letters. How did you go about getting your father's story down? What did that process look like? So you know, a lot of these stories, as as you can imagine, I had heard in some context growing up, right? Uh, you know, he'd sort of told the stories, you know, sometimes in passing, sometimes it'd be more detailed than the other times. Sometimes some details would be a little different each time, just based on how he remembered it. And they were always just super compelling, almost like episodic stories on their own. And early on, when I was a kid, I had and wanted to be a writer, I was like, one day I'm going to write my dad's stories. I'm going to put it in a, in a book somehow. And, you know, I didn't want to do a straight up biography. Uh, you know, the memoir form was always interesting to me, but I wanted to, you know, get these stories directly, you know, from him. So it just started with, you know, I just sat him down. I said, dad, we're going to try that, you know, try to do this book. I sat him down. I went and got his stories first. It was sort of an unconventional way than, than I would traditionally do interviews where I would do a ton of research ahead of time and talk to them, you know, based on the research I had. I just sort of went blind and asked my dad, like, let's just talk about, tell me everything that you can remember. And I would ask follow-ups based on those memories. And then I circled back around and did the research and pieced the the blanks together, pieced the chronology together as best I could. And, you know, we really sort of worked together. Like I would write you know, a chapter based on his stories, based on the research. And he would sort of, and I would sort of fill in some blanks with things that he wasn't sure about. And that would help jog his memory. And we get as close to 
you know, his recollection as, as possible. I mean, it was, there was, there was a lot of, of, of moments of excavating some really sort of deeply hidden stuff that he hadn't thought about in 60 years and trying to pull that out and trying to make it, you know, get it as, as close to what happened as possible. And there were some painful times or painful times for both of us trying to make it work. But, you know, we, we worked real close th- throughout the whole process. It wasn't sort of like this thing where I interviewed him and I just went off and wrote a book. <laughs> hoped it was all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and hoped it was right. So that wasn't the, that wasn't the case. We would we would get together every every Sunday. You know, we were going to travel a lot and go to some of these places, but COVID hit right in the middle of the book process, and so we would just sit on Zoom and you know try to put each other into those scenes and into those moments and, and you know and put those moments on the page. And how was that for him? As you said, I'm sure at times it was painful. Was he excited to have his story told? Was he a little anxious? Was he happy to have it all out into the world? How did he feel about it? It depends on what day it was, <laughs> what day it was honestly. Like there were some stories that, you know, like he he is always about shining the light on the no-named or the people who are underrepresented in the history book. So he was he was always excited about you know, talking about the C.O. Chins and the Amzie Moores and Doris Castles and people like that. But, you know, really having him recreate sort of the most painful moments, his last moments with Mega Evers, you know, the eulogy that he delivered for for James Chaney. My dad had not reread it since, you know, since it happened. He, he has watched clips, but he hasn't really sort of been in that moment since then. So that was extremely painful. And then the letters, you know, which were I, you know, I wrote two, you know, three of them to him and they were hard for him to read. They were hard for me to write. They were hard for him to read and sort of face, you know, his son talking to him candidly about our relationship. So there were times where it was joyful. We had a great time. Sometimes we'd go out and hang out and talk about things. And there were times that it was just really, really difficult. And I had to keep pushing him to sort of get to the the truth of what happened. Well, and for him to face that you didn't feel like he was always that great a father because he was out and about a bunch trying to do so much of this. And I think it's hard when you have people like that activists that are trying to change the world and are very focused on what they're doing. And what they're doing is wonderful, but it sometimes means that their family life is not quite as easy as it could be. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you are in a space where you are sure you are going to die at the age of 21, right? It makes it difficult for you to think about planning for your future and think about things that deal with longevity and stability. And one of those things is a family. And, you know, it was difficult. My dad was back headfirst into a movement in the 90s with the algebra project and math literacy in schools and back in Mississippi and back fighting this crusade. And parts of our relationship were not, you know, what they could have been otherwise. And it was difficult. You know, my, my parents divorced at, you know, when I was, when I was 11, my dad traveled a lot. And as a kid, I saw our relationship as part of the sacrifice that you just make. I was sacrificing for the greater part of the movement. And, you know, now that I have my own family and want to do things differently, it sort of crystallized me and my dad's relationship, but also the story sort of crystallized, you know, how my dad came to be who he was by the age of 45 when when I was born. And I think that 
you know, we have a better understanding of, of, of what happened. But yeah, I mean, it, it, our family should not have, shouldn't like my dad and I should not have the relationship that we have now, but considering everything that, that he went through. Well, and I'm sure writing this book together was very cathartic for both of you, you know, to be able to work through some of those issues and for you to better understand and for him to better understand what you were thinking. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, it caused us to have conversations that we had not had before. It caused us to be honest with each other in ways that we had not before. I mean, you can forget, you know, like there's a tendency to sort of forgive and love through things without always having those come to Jesus moments. And we had some of those come to Jesus moments through the book. And I think, you know, the good thing is, as now we are in a better place on the other side of the book, even, you know, even when we started this book, we were in a, in a, in a good place, but now we're in an even better place. I just really felt for him for those early 1960s times, particularly. And I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective when you analogize it to Vietnam, and I'm sure he did have PTSD. How could you not from some of the things that he experienced? But I just hadn't thought about it that way before. And that analogy really hit home for me. And I've thought so much about it since I read your book. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this, you know, I'm going to go back a little bit because my part of the, the conceptual conception of this book happened in high school when my high school teacher Miss Williams, um, shout out to Miss Williams. She was wonderful. We read the things they carried, the Tim O'Brien book uh, about Vietnam. And as I was reading it, and you know, he, you know, reading some of the things that he was thinking, things he was going through, I was like, a lot of this stuff sort of sounds like how Dad feels and what Dad talks about. And when I started writing the book, I started writing the book thinking of this book. I mean, as a war book, as a book about war in America, and these were people who were fighting nonstop. I mean, day after day on enemy turf, there was no home base for them to go to. You know, there was no place to sleep at night where you felt safe. And it was nonstop. And yes, they dealt with bombings and spies and organized government assault. And, you know, it feels like, a, I mean, it, it, and dad has said it before, he felt like a war general sending people off to die. So this really felt, you know, it was written in that sort of way to make this feel like a war book and to make people understand and think about what does it mean that people had to fight a war in America just to have equal rights because of the color of their skin. Absolutely. And I think framing it that way was very helpful for me. But I had read Buses Are Coming last year, and I really thought a lot as I read that book about the 1961 Freedom Rides and about how horrible it would be for me as a white person to be so upset about people I don't even know to like show up at a bus stop and throw things like it's just so foreign to me. I don't understand how you can have that level of hatred for people you don't even know just based on the color of their skin. So I had really kind of focused on that aspect of it, like what is wrong with people? But then when I was reading your story, I was thinking about how horrible it would be for those people fighting day in, day out. It's obviously horrible all the time to worry about being pulled over when you're driving your car, not doing anything wrong or living in your home or whatever else it is. But just to really think about those people that were fighting on the front lines and agreeing to ride the buses, knowing they were going to be met by these angry mobs with nooses and guns and bottles, that takes a lot. I mean, that's a really strong person to be able to do that. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, they were even more protected than the local people. You know, like when dad went to jail, there was a 
Watts line, you know, like a, a network of calls and ways that you can make sure that he was safe. They had bail money that would come every few days. You know, like if he went missing, people would go find him. You know, he had access to John Doerr, who um, was a government, you know, official who could help get him out of jail. But there were folks, you know, who were in families in Greenville, Mississippi, and families in Canton, families that did not have access to that, who were also sort of equally on the front lines. Like if you took in a freedom you know, a, a Freedom Summer volunteer in the summer of 64 and you fed them, you put your life in danger and there was nobody who was going to come and make sure that you were OK. And I think one of the the things I want people to get from that book is that everybody who did anything for the movement, whether you were riding a bus, whether you were doing a sit in or whether you were just simply feeding a, a, a volunteer or driving them around or introducing them to people or even just registering the vote like you were under siege. And there are so many people whose names we never know and never will know whose lives were impacted and lost and taken just for trying to live in, in America. Trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were trying to do the right thing. They were just trying to trying to actively survive, you know, like they were trying to actively do what's best for their families and they were getting, you know, massacred for it. Well, and the craziest part of it to me is that it's people wanting rights they should already have, rights that other people have. It's just basic common decency most of the time. And it's just so awful to think that you have to fight for that then and now. Yeah. I mean, as the mo- much of this book was written, probably maybe half or so of this book was written, and definitely all of it was revised and everything in the post-George Floyd era. You know, And it was written in a time where we're watching videos of black people getting killed by police for doing, you know, nothing for, you know, walking down the street or sleeping in their apartments. And, you know, it, it just it just highlights, you know, this is just is nonstop. It just feels nonstop. And, and it feels like there we can look at the past. We can look at the South and say that these things are relegated to the 60s or Mississippi. And we see that this is a pervasive way that uh, of America and also, what's just as pervasive is, is folks, you know, determination to fight it and overcome it. Absolutely. And it's wonderful to read a story about those people that are fighting to overcome it. And as you said, people large and small, doing small things, doing large things on the front line in secret, however it is, those people that, that are working to make it better. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, I am one of the things I, I loved is learning about a lot of the people who I just grew up with, who were friends of my dad, who I saw as uncles and aunts, and just knowing what they did. And then they went on and and like became whatever, teachers or whatever, and just lived the rest of their lives. But they have these, you know, monumental stories. I hope people read and go talk to their parents and grandparents to ask them a lot of questions about their stories, because there's a million stories that are probably just as riveting as, as dad's story. Well, I Googled a number of the people that you had coming and going in your home when you were younger, when you mentioned them. Some names I was familiar with, but the ones I wasn't, I went ahead and looked up just to see what they had done so I would be familiar with them. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's my hope. I hope that people do that. And, you know, there, like I said, there are just so many stories of folks who just, I would just sit down and hear these stories and just and just could not believe what I was hearing. I mean, there were so many that could you know, could be in the book that we just didn't have space for. And I hope that somebody or that some way that these are chronicled 
um, as much as possible. You can write a second book. I can't even think about a second book. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't want to add to your panic for the three right. weeks. <laughs> well, what was the hardest part about writing this book? Well, the hardest part, well, there, there's a couple. There's like sort of emotional hardest part and like logistical hardest part. I think sort of from my dad's story, the hardest part was writing about um, Mrs. Hamer getting beaten in the Winona jail. Just hearing the story of what she went through, the brutality of it, of this this woman who had already been through so much and what what happened to her and sort of and hearing from, you know, Miss Uvester, who was took care of her in the, the cell right afterwards was was really, really painful to hear. And some I, I had trouble even like going back and reading after I'd written it because it was just so so difficult to even comprehend. And just in, you know, the letters were, were incredibly difficult. The letters were really, really difficult to write. I'd written, they were the last things I wrote in the book. I'd written so many attempts <laughs> at writing in my voice and writing sort of my thoughts and putting them in the book that got scrapped. I probably wrote a whole book that got cut <laughs> because they just weren't good. And trying to figure out where I fit in, figure out how to how to speak to my relationship with dad and and finally the letters writing them in the letter sort of opened that up because that that idea did not come until the very end like let me just write them as letters so we can figure out to, and 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 help with the with the writing and 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 making it make sense i was curious about that if you had started with that format or if that was something that had come about over time and i'll tell you i teared up with the letter to your children i just was like oh <laughs> yeah uh yeah that was the that so that came almost heat of the moment. I, there was, when I first wrote the proposal, I knew I was, you know, going to write obviously dad's stories. And I, I couldn't, even then I couldn't figure out how to put myself in the story. I was sort of writing them in the, writing my thoughts in the footnotes. And, you know, everybody I talked to was sort of like, no, we need your voice. And it was sort of hard for me to figure out, you know, well, who wants to hear from me? Like my dad has been through so much. Like nobody wants to hear what I have to say about that. Like it's his story. But, you know, I think there is a, a, you know, a generational and emotional and, and you know, reason for me to be part of it. I just kind of was resistant to it at the beginning. And I just was writing these chapters from my voice that were just sort of essays and they just were not, they just weren't good. I just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> I just couldn't crack the nut. And, and you know, I'd already sent in my manuscript and my editor, Gail, was sort of like, these still don't really work. And I was like, what? And I'd been thinking about it. I was like, what if I just, let me just try letters so I can just get through, you know, what I want to say on the page. We could change it back if we want to. As I wrote the letters, I was just like, I think, I mean, I, I hadn't even thought that I was going to do it. I just wrote the letters and I was just like, I'm just going to write a letter to the to the kids too. And just did it sort of almost in one sitting and wrote it down. And it, it sort of felt like uh, completing the circle in, in the book. When I read about the book initially and then received it, I was so curious to see how the two stories would intertwine. And I really liked the way it worked out. I like you doing the letters and then you telling your father's story. I thought that worked well and it did put your two stories together. It was just a good format for it. Well, that's good to know. Thanks. That was definitely, um, that was pulling teeth for me, <laughs> for me to make that, to, to, to just figure it out. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things is just like, and I think that there is sort of a meta commentary to be said about that is that like I look at my dad and, you know, what he went through and arrests and his friends are killed. And I'm like, well, I didn't you know who I didn't go through that. Like, I don't who you know, nobody wants to hear me complaining about, 
you know, or my dad wasn't around <laughs> enough, you know, like I, I felt, you know, almost petulant in a sort of way and entitled in a sort of way to even sort of think that my words are served to be, you know, deserve to be on the same page as his stories. And so I had to sort of break through that. And I, and like I said, I was resistant to it. And there was a lot of that, like a lot of thinking about that, especially early on of, should we alternate chapters? Should we just, you know, like, what should we do? And, and we just sort of happened, uh, you know, this sort of just, it worked out this way. And and yeah, I, I in the end, I finally was happy with it, but I, I was, that was probably the, the hardest, hardest part of the book. I can see that. Well, what surprised you the most as you wrote the book? Well, what, surpri- what surprised me was something that I, I kind of already knew, but I hadn't, you know, like when you think about your parents, and your parents tell you a story, like even if your mom or dad is like, well, when I was 10, I did this, like you still envision like this old person, <laughs> you know, like in the story. Right. 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 And so it wasn't until we, you know, like I really thought about, you know, and, I, and while, while I was writing some of this, I was teaching at, at Morehouse College uh, here in Atlanta. And I really sort of understood how young my dad was you know, 21, 22, like the things that he was doing at that age, like that really hit home to me just how young he was. Just hearing these stories of the idea of him drinking before going on the freedom ride and things like that. Like this is what kids do, you know, like they do things that kids do. And and just thinking about how young everybody was like Bob Moses was, you know, 26, I think at, at the time. And he was the elder statesman. And you know, so that was one of the things that that I sort of learned. And, and then, you know, I guess the biggest revelation, which I talked about the, in the opening, is that I had sort of thought about my dad through my childhood as somebody who was settled in his place in the movement. And to learn that he was still, that he was sort of coming back to the movement for the first time in 30 years throughout my childhood to see how much he was actively working through as I, while I was a child uh, was a real sort of revelation that we came to during just our conversations about the book. And at one point in one of the chapters, you talk about that, where he originally thought all of this work would bring about a change that would be lasting and that we wouldn't be dealing with what we're dealing with now. And I really thought a lot about that, too. That had to be so frustrating. And I'm sure 30 years later in the 90s, he was still trying to grapple with it all and work through it, but also just the frustration that it didn't bring about as much change as it should have. Yeah, that was one of the early questions I had for him was, you know, and, and again, you know, you got to think about where we were or where I was or where the country was when I was asking him, you know, some of these initial questions. We have this terribly racist president. We have, you know, these videos of black folks being killed. We have all this stuff going on in this country. And I'm asking this man, like, you lost so much. Where did you think you, we would be? You know? Right. And, you know, just on a personal level, I've been obviously, you know, pulled over by police and harassed by police. Like, did you think at the age of 21 that you would be 80 with children and grandchildren who are going through the same thing you're going through? You know, and I don't think he totally thought about that at the time. You're just thinking about, you know, the day to day and survival. But, you know, you have to be thinking about that. But also you have to be thinking about how much you've also where where we would be if not for him and the people who who were there. Absolutely. And definitely that we would be much farther behind. And so the, there was definitely progress made. It's just a matter sometimes of, of wishing probably more progress were made. But that's that's probably the case with many things. Right. 
Well, how about the title and the cover? I think that the cover is beautiful. It grabbed me from the second that I saw it, and I really like the title. So tell me a little bit about that. I know authors don't have a ton of say in the cover, but I know a lot of times there is some back and forth. Okay, so I had a ton of say in this cover, actually. Oh, good. Oh, I love that. Half the time authors say, I don't really have any say. And I'm like, well, some authors do. So that's great. Well, tell me about it. So the cover was done by B. Mike, Brandon Odoms, who is in New, who's from New Orleans. He does Studio B. Um, he does all kind of murals all over the place. And, you know, he just does these really sort of beautiful renderings of Black history uh, with these sort of, you know, spray paint graffiti style. And I, you know, we go back to... When I first started as a journalist in New Orleans, 2010, he was filming sort of like guerrilla style rap videos. And I was like trying to cover the videos. And like I'd try to, you know, I'd use him to get onto the set and he'd use me to, you know, if I could write about it and if I needed an interview and all that stuff. And so he would film the interviews. And so, but now he's sort of blown up into this, you know, major, major artist. I mean, he, he also did uh, the cover to Will Smith's book. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, they. and now that you're saying that, I can see the similarities because that's a fabulous cover too. Right, yeah. So he did that, which, you know, he did, I was, when I uh, officially asked him to do the covers, like, well, I just finished doing this Will Smith book. Do you think that? <laughs> I was like, well, we're, we're doing it anyway. So, um, you know, so he does all of this tremendous work. And so as soon as I got, you know, knew that we were doing the book, I was like, I want B-Mike to do my cover. Because, I mean, it's it's New Orleans, you know, there's that history in New Orleans, there's our history, there's just, I just, so much of the book is about keeping it with, keeping things within your circle and growing with people and things like that. So I was like, you know, I want B-Mike to do this cover, I pushed for him, I, I was like, please, y'all just reach out to him, he'll do it. And, you know, he did, and, and I gave, and, and that was it. So I didn't have any, any sort of guidance on what actually went on the cover, because I was just like, look, he'll just do whatever and it'll look nice. You know, I'm trusting his vision, trusting him with it. And and that's what he, he did. And it, it looks fantastic. So yes, that was, that was how the cover came about. I love that story. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, this just speaks so much to the spirit of the book that, of, of on, on, a, on a lot of different levels. And what about the title, The Movement Made Us? So the title, yes, that was, um, that came, so I was originally writing a much more, vexed and darker book (laughs) based on where my mind was at the time of all this and and extreme frustration with everything going on and just thinking about sort of the conversation we had earlier and like all these people have sacrificed and this is and we're at this place where you know we have all this going on in the country and I was extremely so one of the 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 original original title was uh, I'm tired of funerals which is something that my dad said at James Cheney's funeral. And it was sort of going to highlight a lot of the people who my dad knew. I mean, it still sort of, it still does that who, who, you know, are no longer here and things like that. But that just sort of was too, you know, took away too much from what was actually the the beauty of what these, these folks accomplished. And so that just came from a brainstorming thing. I think it just worked on a lot of different levels with, with the word, uh, with us, you know, with me and my dad with the entire country, with the generation. And the idea of movement also fascinated me and, and the movement itself, but the way that my, you know, my dad moved from place to place and the way that we are moving together. So movement and us sort of were the two words that sort of stuck with me. And and that just came 
you know, and that that made it all the way through. I mean, that was sort of in in the final stages of the proposal and that that made it all the way through to the to the cover. Well, I do love the title and I hadn't really thought about it having multiple meanings. And I always think it's wonderful when a title does, because then you think of several different things as you're looking at it. And I love the movement aspect of it. Yes, that was something, you know, like and and again, you know, originally a lot of this was going to be done while my dad and I were traveling together. So there was going to be a little bit more movement going on through the book. But obviously, obviously, we couldn't do that. But I think it still sort of sort of holds up. Absolutely. But what have you read lately that you really liked? So I have read, I've read South to America, which is probably, yeah, probably my favorite thing I've read so far this year, which is Monty Perry's book, uh, where she travels through different places in the South and just does this thing that Imani Perry, only Imani Perry can do, where she just converges all of these ideas and histories onto the page. And it's just, it's just her just totally in her bag. And it's incredibly brilliant. That would be a good one paired with your book as well. I actually have it in Libro FM. It's up next for me to listen to, and I've heard such great things about it. Yeah, so Imani Perry has been extremely influential in my writing. I held her book, Breathe, a letter to my sons, and Kiese Lehman's heavy, very, very close to me while I was writing this book, especially just thinking about how to write about these these relationships with with people in my family. So I'm forever indebted to Imani Perry for her brilliance and just this yeah and i i hope that we do get to talk at some point you know after the book is out because i think that they're the books sort of are are you know play cousins as we like to say oh i love that anything else that you've read that you loved so today i just picked up danielle smith's shine bright which is uh like danielle smith is a is she used to be my editor and is for me the most important pop culture writer of my generation. She was, you know, used to edit Vibe magazine. She was editor at Billboard. And it is a sort of part memoir, part history of Black women in music. And I was able to read, you know, a little bit of it ahead of time. Now, I've today, April 19th is the release date, and I've picked it up, and I am going to, like, cancel all my plans because I am locked in on this book. That sounds really good. I'm going to have to add that to my Libro FM account as well. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, she's just fantastic. And this is I, I've been looking forward to this book for a while. Well, thank you. And thank you, David, for joining me today to talk about the movement made us. There were no panic attacks, no stress. All went great. We made it. We made it. <laughs> we made it. Thanks for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. And I can't wait for everyone to read the movement made us. Thank you so, so much. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show 
and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.